You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. here at Forefront. Some of you I recognize I was here this summer. As you know and as you love, uh, Pastor Vanita and Todd, when they call and ask you to do something, you tend to say yes. (laughs) They're those kind of people in my life, yes? And so um, some of you probably don't know me. I don't know you very well, but here's what I know or what you need to know, that um, I'm friends with Todd and Vanita, so that should give me some cred. (laughs) She assured me that you were all close friends, so that gives you some cred. Uh, My name is Ben. I am a co-pastor at Riverfront Family Church, a church that has a very similar ethos to Forefront up in Hartford, Connecticut, and um, it's great to be with you. Uh, My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I am a white cis male, gay, grew up in a Jewish family, became a follower of Jesus 30 years ago. Uh, For some of you who come from a high church tradition, you'll remember that part of the liturgy is often this, right? The, The peace of the Lord be with you, and you might respond, and also with your spirit, or also with you. And historically, that's actually like a a kind of a mutual sign of consent, um, giving the person kind of speaking or leading up front permission to proceed. In other churches, the tradition might be to to, to call out, preach, uh, or amen, or if things aren't going so well, help him, Lord. (laughs) All of those are permissible. But may the peace of the Lord be with each and every one of you. Permission received. In addition to being a a pastor, I'm also a a former professional chef. I I say former because these days, in addition to my church work, I'm actually executive director of a nonprofit in Hartford called Forge City Works, where we use social enterprise businesses like, like restaurants to train people with serious barriers to employment. So I'm not in the kitchen nearly as much as I was, But I'm still very much in the restaurant world. We're actually opening a a new full-service restaurant in the next couple of months. Which means I need to be very careful to remember whether I'm in the restaurant kitchen running service on a Saturday night or in church on Sunday morning, because I tend to use different language. (laughs) So if I get confused, just forgive me. Right? Restaurants are intense, high-energy, hot, loud, sweaty places. And on a Saturday night when you're in the weeds, us chefs tend to sound more like Anthony Bourdain or Gordon Ramsay than Billy Graham or, you know, Pastor Vanita or Pastor Mac or Pastor Josh. Now, for a long time in my role training people in kitchen work, I tried to hammer into them the importance of having an intense internal sense of urgency. I used to tell my students, uh, aspiring chefs, people who are coming out of the prison system or out of rehab or homelessness, who wanted to to, to find a way to overcome barriers to employment and get on a career path, that to think like a chef means, among other things, to have an unstoppable internal sense of urgency. I, I don't do that anymore. 
these days, I find myself emphasizing more the importance of discipline and, and planning and what we call mise en place, right? A good French term it means everything in its place, not urgency. In fact, urgency is often the result of our failure to be disciplined, to plan, to practice mental mise en place in our lives. I've learned from experience that a constant internal sense of urgency is actually toxic to my soul and the body and the mind and to people's performance. And through my own journey and the journey of Riverfront Family Church towards figuring out what it means to be an anti-racist church and anti-racist individually, very similar to the journey that Forefront is on, I've come to understand how toxic this culture of urgency is. And if we can just call it what it is, how grounded it is in white supremacy culture. And I know you all here at Forefront have been on a similar journey. So let's just talk and unpack this thing. There would have been a time where I would have been uncomfortable as a white cis man standing up and talking about white supremacy culture and trying to unpack what it means to be anti-racist. And then I started learning more about it and I felt even more uncomfortable because <laughs> I realized I'm taking up much more space than I should. And that's not just a, a weight issue, it's a privilege issue. But a black friend of mine pulled me aside one day and said, you know what? Here's what you have to understand. White people need to own this shit. Oh, that's Saturday night talk. I'm sorry. <laughs> White people need to own this stuff because it's all of our problem. And, and it's time for white people to stop expecting of our friends and neighbors of color to do all the hard work for us, being the teachers and, and correcting us. Like, we gotta do some work. And so it's uncomfortable work, isn't it? But I don't know about you, it's such a breath of fresh air to be in a, a setting like this where we can have these conversations. Right, it's surprisingly rare in our world, isn't it? That we can have these kinds of uncomfortable conversations, what Brene Brown might call the great awkward. Yes? Oh man, aren't we living in the great awkward? <laughs> right? Racial reckoning, trying to come out of this pandemic situation, trying to figure out like which side is up, which side is down. It is just an awkward world to be in right now, isn't it? It's also a troubling world. This morning, driving down from Hartford, I was listening to the radio. I don't know how many of you saw the news reports this morning, the shooting in Colorado Springs, Club Q, at LGBTQ plus nightclub. When I lost, saw the news, five had been killed, 18 injured. They're saying it's too early to understand or declare what the motive was. I think we know, one way or another. And as a gay man, I have to tell you that, that while all the violence, it always, it hurts, it, 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 it makes me angry. There's something about this one that shakes me. 
right? Queer spaces are supposed to be safe spaces. And so to have that violated, particularly on the day that we're remembering all the violence against our transgender siblings. Our world is a broken place. And all the more need for us to have these conversations. When I was in seminary, I had a wonderful professor who taught pastoral care and counseling. He was from Latin America and had a, a thick accent, which was wonderful to listen to in lecture. Now, I could listen to him lecture and teach and even preach all day. He used to say this. He'd say, we are all cucumbers. Fresh, crunchy, bright. And the toxicity of the world around us is like a jug of vinegar that we are all swimming in. And he would say that, that no matter what you want or intend... If you put a cucumber into vinegar for long enough, it will become a pickle. He's right, uh, both from a culinary perspective and a life perspective. <laughs> we are all literally being pickled by the toxicity of the world we live in. The toxicity, among other things, of hatred and violence towards the trans community, misogyny, systemic racism, and white supremacy culture. It's all vinegar. It's all toxic, traumatizing, deeply wounding, and literally pickling us to death. And you can't avoid it. You, my friends, are becoming pickles, even as we speak. And that is why learning to become anti-racist is so important. Because all of us, every one of us, are being hurt and wounded and damaged and pickled by white supremacist culture. I'm sure you've heard this great quotation from Lilla Watson. If you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've become because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. In other words, we are being pickled together, and together we need to start replacing that vinegar with fresh water, renewed water, the waters of life, the waters of Jesus. That quote helped me understand, as a white man, how to reframe and really change the paradigm for my own journey to unpack and dismantle racism in the world. See, when I started, what I thought was that that was kind of a mission I had to help people. And if I finish that phrase out loud, it might be help people less fortunate than me. And there I am, stuck in the muck, being pickled. But as soon as I came to understand that how much damage is being done to my siblings, but also that damage is destroying me as a human being. You see, whatever part of the equation you're in, the system sucks, <laughs> literally. And it's destroying our souls. And so we need to come together to do this hard work. And I know you've been in this series following the very uh, seminal work of Tema Okun, 
who talks about these characteristics of white supremacy culture. And this morning we're talking about urgency is part of that recipe for dysfunction. So why is urgency so toxic? And why is it part of, a, of racist and white supremacist culture? And most importantly, what can we do about it? Timo Kuhn says this, applying the urgency of racial and social justice to our everyday lives in ways that perpetuate power imbalance and disregard for our need to breathe and pause and reflect. In other words, urgency, that, that we have to get this done now, destroys our ability to actually reflect and breathe and step back and engage and listen and be community and learn. Again, Okun writes, the invitation on this and every characteristic we've explored is to investigate how these characteristics and qualities lead to disconnection from each other, from ourselves, from all living things, and even the divine, and how the antidotes can support us to reconnect. In the 1960s, uh, Charles Hummel wrote a little book, a more monograph of sorts, called Freedom from the Tyranny of the Urgent. It kind of became a time management cult movement. You guys all know people who are like way too into time management, right? I mean, this is like worse than veganism. Just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> Such a bad idea to come to Brooklyn and make fun of vegans, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm a chef. I can't really avoid that. Please forgive me. May the peace of the Lord be with each and every one of you. <laughs> but people who get into time management, they can become like evangelistic, like, like in your face, like you have to do it this way, you know, change your life, right? Hummel kind of had that kind of following. But he had a lot of principles that made sense. The premise is that we spend way too much time and energy on urgent things, or the things at least that we think are urgent, than on important things, the things that really matter. An example might be urgent is to get through all my emails that are in my box or all my text messages before I leave work. Important, getting out of work early so I make it to the gym and start getting healthy. Now, here's the thing. You ignore the important long enough, it will become urgent. Now, Hummel ties this back to the Protestant work ethic, the American Protestant work ethic. Maybe better understood is the, the white American Protestant work ethic something that still influences us more than we realize today. The sense of rugged individualism, right? And the sense that urgency should drive everything and just work harder and harder more. And there are really two problems with this. Uh, first, when we allow the tyranny of the urgent to rule in our lives, it's like swimming in vinegar, right? It kills our souls. This is certainly true in our justice work. Some of you experience this. I don't know about you, but when I get involved with this kind of work, it's overwhelming, isn't it? Right? The bad news never stops. 
the 24-7 news cycle, right, that's built upon having to have breaking news all the time, makes everything sound urgent, even the most distracting and small thing, and it draws us away. It distracts us from actually the important work, doesn't it? Right, when it comes to justice work, particularly in this country, we're trying to undo 400 and more years of systemic injustice. That's going to take some time, isn't it? But when you and I start, start measuring with an urgency, like, like, like corporates who want to measure by like quarterly gains, right? we can make that happen on paper, can't we? But we do so at the expense of the fundamentals of good business, of a good movement that transforms, yes? We need to be careful because urgency not only will destroy our souls, but it actually destroys the movement towards justice that we're after. This is true in our jobs and our professions. It's true in our families. It's true in our personal lives. How many of you have been there? Now you can raise your hand here. Right? We've all experienced that at some point. And it distracts us from what's truly important, what matters. We get more caught up in, in the horse race than in what truly matters, what's truly important, and it costs us. I don't know about you, this last election, right? It was like we went in, I was really nervous, I was scared. It turns out not to be as bad as I thought, but still not everything's right. And, and, like, and did you follow, like, it's a week, right? It's a week plus of, like, you know, who's really going to win Arizona and Nevada? And they would treat it like it was like a sport, right? As if like these counts were still coming in, as if it was still being voted on. And you're like, actually, it's all done. We just don't know yet, right? But we were like drawn to it. Like, I mean, I couldn't stop watching Steve Kornacki. <laughs> now, part of that's honestly, I have a little bit of a crush on him. If any of you know him, <laughs> feel free to make a connection. That would be awesome. <laughs> but it distracts us from what's actually important, doesn't it? from getting the real work done at the community level, at the grassroots level, about mobilizing, about, about the change that happens at the local church level, at the community level, at the neighborhood level, at the, at the forefront level. Urgency will destroy that. The, the, the second problem is that the tyranny of the urgent reinforces the kinds of behaviors, thought patterns, and cultural norms that will continue to undercut the real important work that we want to do. Here are a couple of examples. When we embrace urgency, it makes it difficult to take the time to be, particularly this is true at work, by the way, it makes it difficult to take the time to be inclusive and encourage democratic and thoughtful decision-making, to think and act long-term, and or consider the consequences of whatever actions we take. Additionally, frequently, it frequently results in sacrificing potential allies for quick or highly visible results. For example, it can involve sacrificing the interests of BIPOC people and communities in order to win victories for white people, seen as kind of the default or the norm of the community. It can reinforce existing power hierarchies that use a sense of urgency to control decision-making in the name of expediency. We have to decide this now. We have to decide it immediately. And so really only the, the voices with power at the table get to be heard. And trust us, it's for your good. If it were Saturday night, I'd have a word for that. <laughs> at, uh, I don't know. At, at Riverfront, we theologically like to call that stuff bullshit. <laughs> That's even on a Sunday morning we do that. Uh, on a podcast that uh, I'm on with my friend Jesse, um, and it's really about all about embedded theology and unpacking all of that. It's called Changing the Sheets. We 
That's kind of a, a callback line for us, the theology of BS. And it's good to be able to identify it, isn't it? Right? The, just to name it for what it is. Uh, Akun again writes this in an extended quote. This characteristic of white supremacy is challenging because we understand that racial justice and equity is urgent. While supremacy and racism threaten, target, and violate BIPOC people and communities every day, white supremacy and racism invite and condition us into toxic thinking and behavior every day. We are called on with this characteristic to hold the volatile and tender contradiction of an underlying urgency about our immediate need for justice, which is with us always with a day-to-day sense of urgency that too often defines our organizational and community cultures, leading to the consequences that we've talked about. White supremacy culture is not urgent about racial justice. White supremacy culture is urgent in the name of short-term power and profit. Be clear about that. And white supremacy culture likes to engender a culture of urgency in those of us who are working to dismantle it as it knows that living with a constant sense that everything is urgent is a recipe for the abuse of power and burnout. Yes? yes. We've all seen it, haven't we? So how does it, what's the antidote? How do we play this out? Well, in the kitchen, to me, it's often about discipline and planning and mise en place. In leadership of the nonprofit world that I do now, in the corporate world, I believe it's about helping people, and some of you are in this world, create realistic work plans based on the lived experience of the people in the organization involved. It's a commitment to equity, including a commitment to discuss and plan for what it means to embed equity practices into the work plan. And that takes time. I'm learning that in my own organization at Forge City Works, where we're trying to really build DEIB into our very culture and DNA. And you know what? It's really inefficient. And it's really worth the work. It's transforming our community, our, our sense of who we are as an organization. It's transforming our, our missional work and the impact we're having on our neighbors and in our community and on each other and ourselves. Sometimes inefficient work is the most effective work. It's about a commitment to learn from past experience and to understand how long things take. Too often we get stuck on figuring out what's the next three months or six months or year plan. Honestly, there's only so much we can accomplish in those times. But if you study the scriptures, both the Hebrew Testament, the New Testament, you recognize that often progress is counted in hundreds of years. We find ourselves at the end of the Hebrew Testament waiting in a gap time, right? We're getting ready for Advent. Advent, we spend a few weeks together imagining the world in darkness as if Christ had never come. And between Malachi and the ancient prophets and the proclamation of the good news from Mark, there's a gap of 400 years By the way, the same gap that the Israelites found themselves enslaved in Egypt, wondering, was God at work? Was there progress? Was there hope? What was happening? Why are we just being pickled again and again and again? And yet there was redemption and there was good news. And God seemed silent. Does God ever seem silent in your life? We can acknowledge it. We can admit it. 
Though God may have seemed silent, God was at work in ways we could have never imagined her to be at work. And yet, if we claim to the urgent, we will not only burn out, we will lose faith. And maybe that's the greatest victory of the enemy. Yes? That we might lose heart and lose faith. So personally, how do we fight? How do we fight with a movement of in urgency? I think it's about a commitment to, to create margin in our lives, of finding space and rest, the ability to breathe, and to refuse to bow knee to the tyranny. Luke chapter 5, Jesus is doing amazing work. Literally gospel work, good news work, the, the work of healing and of restoration and of liberation. And it says this in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus would then withdraw to lonely places and he prayed. What's he thinking? It's highly inefficient. He had the crowds. He had the momentum. He could have gotten so much more justice work done. And yet, what does he do? He withdraws. He refuses to give in to the tyranny of the urgent. Because he knew that it would undercut the very kingdom of God. Right? The real gospel. Perhaps we should follow the way of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, picking up in verse 28. Jesus says this. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened. Is that any of you? Online, any of you? Come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle, oh, and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This morning, as we enter into this week of Thanksgiving and this month of Advent, how many of you need rest for your souls? Sometimes I think we put on a good face. We pretend as if the vinegar hasn't pickled us, and yet our hearts are a little bit shriveled as they soak in vinegar. We pretend like the news doesn't hurt, that our traumas and our wounds that go back years we can just ignore, and we find ourselves weary and tired, and burdened, and bedraggled, beat up, and burnt out more and more every day. And I believe it's because we've bought into this culture of urgency. We've lost the capacity to simply breathe, to rest, to listen to the moving of the Spirit, to think in terms of long-term movements of God and of justice. And we're caught up 
and what the power wants us to be caught up in, the powers and principalities, as Paul says it. Right? Our battle is never against flesh and blood, never, but against the powers and the principalities. And the, the best answer, the best antidote is to breathe, It's to find ourselves in the way of Jesus, allowing his yoke to be easy and his burden light, to come together as community, to listen and to learn and to grow and to be together and to travel together through the wilderness, however long it takes, knowing that when we're together, we're making progress. And although the work is messy and the work is hard and the work seems almost endless, it is good work. It is soul-feeding work. It's the kind of work that makes us more human in all the good ways and the hard ways. Because when we're human, we can feel that pain. We can feel those wounds. We can feel the injustice. We can understand what that vinegar around us is doing. And yet we pursue. And yet we push on, not with urgency, but with purpose. Right? Not with urgency, but with divine purpose and calling and indeed rest. So this Thanksgiving week, I invite you to give up the urgency. I know some of you are probably spending more time actually going through your prep list for Thursday than listening to me. It's okay, I get it. Mise en place. <laughs> and I know that there's both joy and stress with being with the family, yes. Yes, we can all admit that, yes. But I encourage you, I challenge you, I invite you to carve out some time to simply be, to breathe, to mourn, to listen, to sit with Jesus and never succumb to the tyranny of the urgency. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. And as I do, I just want to remind folks Online, if you want to put some prayer requests in into the chat, you know, it's a privilege for the team here to pray for you. But let us join our hearts in prayer. God, we so need a place of rest, a place where we can breathe and simply be. And yet we get caught up in the urgency and the busyness and the awfulness of this world. And we just keep pedaling harder and harder as we swim in vinegar and get pickled. And somehow that's mixed metaphors, but I think you know what I'm saying. And so will you give us a gift, oh God? The gift to breathe and to simply be and to embrace a different work ethic, a different approach to life that takes a long view and knows that the story is still being written and that there's a better ending to come and that this is a story filled of faith and of hope and of detours and adventures, but ultimately of victory. And may this week 
and we start rejecting the tyranny of the urgent. And all God's people said, Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.